We've been working through this series called The King, the Snake and the Promise, which really is an overarching picture of the story of the whole Bible. It's looking at what is God doing in the world? Uh, what, what has he been doing from the beginning? What, what is the story that, that's going on here? And we, we've come along really partway through this story to, I think, one of the most important passages in the whole Bible. Uh, let me give you a little bit of the story so far. Uh, hold on to your hats. We'll run through uh, thinking about where we're at. Uh, and then we'll get to looking at this passage and its implications for you and me and how we think about God. So, so far we've seen that in the beginning, God created the universe. God is king. He made all things and everything and everyone is responsible to him for he sustains all things. He makes Adam and Eve to rule in his world under him with God as the king and Adam and Eve ruling uh, in the way that he set up for the purposes that God made, um, filling the earth and, and looking after the earth together. But then Adam and Eve reject God's plan. And they, they reject God's goodness and, and how to live and so they get booted out of the garden. They get booted out of relationship with God. There's tension now in what we call the fall. And, and mankind, humanity, is kind of twisted. We don't live the way we want. We, we always think naturally about putting myself as king, making myself make the actions, make the choices, set up what is good and what isn't. We determine what is right and what isn't. And that's when it first started. And from that point onward, from Genesis 3 onward, we start seeing this pattern of humanity rebelling against God, thinking we can run our lives better than him. So Cain kills Abel. And then there's this restart. Humanity rebel again. God gets to the point that he's grieved that he's made humanity. There's a flood, a washing, a clean start for humanity. But it's no sooner that Noah walks off the boat he praises God for the creation that he has and falls straight into rebelling against God again. Then God scatters the people in the Tower of Babel and we keep hearing this repeated theme about mankind rebelling against God, putting ourselves at the center and God consistently coming and creating a new start. Last week we saw the promises God made to a man named Abram, a man who really was just a nobody. A man whom God chose to bless. Why didn't God wipe out all humanity? Why didn't God just say this is enough? Because God is for us. Repeated theme you keep hearing throughout the Bible. God is for you. God is for humanity. And we're going to see that clearly today. He chooses Abraham and then he gives him this promise. And that's where we see this controlling promise that kind of helps understand the rest of the timeline of the Bible. Uh, we saw it last week in Genesis 12, but let's look through it again and try to see what God has said, because here is where God is going for the, with the universe. Here is God's plan for you and me. You ready? Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Did you say that? God spoke there to a man named Abraham, probably 3,000 years ago, around that sort of time period. And he was thinking of you. All people on the face of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. Some say that the Bible is just this book that's irrelevant, a number of writings throughout history, maybe a good moral guide, but it doesn't have much to do with us. 
Friends, it has everything to do with us. For it speaks of the God who made you and sustained you. And it speaks of his promises, his word to you. And it tells of your future and mine. Have a look at the promises of this God. The four things we see there are kind of four aspects to this promise. And it's worth writing these down. It's worth remembering these because the rest of the Bible is talking about these four things. Number one, God will give Abram many descendants. He'll make him into a large nation, a huge nation. God's people. Number two, um, they, will, they will possess, they will live in a promised land and have rest from their enemies. God will make them huge. He will take them to a land, to a place that is their own. Thirdly, God will be their God. He's like, he does this for them. He is the one who leads them and, and, and guides them. He is the one who does this because of nothing that they have done, because he has just chosen to. And number four, through them, all nations on earth will be blessed. So you've got it. These are really important to get in our heads. It's a different kind of sermon this week. It's, it's more thinking through the, the foundational building blocks of how we think about God's plans and purposes on earth. God will give him many descendants, huge nation. They'll have a land. Um, they'll have rest from their enemies. God will be their God. And through this nation, through Abram and his descendants, all peoples on earth will be blessed. This isn't just some random verse pulled out that we've just gone to this week. It's key for everything we understand about Christianity. It's key for everything we need to understand about human history. It's actually key for understanding who you are and your past and your future. But the promises God gave for Abram that we looked at last week, we see won't be fulfilled in him. They don't all get applied to him. Abraham has a son, Isaac, and then Isaac has a son, Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. If you know the, the story of Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat, right? It's actually from the Bible. Uh, and there we, we see that the 12 sons of, of Jacob, um, well, 11 of them hate Jacob. So they, they, they're sick of him. They want to kill him. They decide to sell him into slavery. He goes off to Egypt. And at this point, we don't know much of this promise. There hasn't been that much happening apart from Abram's family growing and multiplying and getting larger and larger and larger. Well, eventually there's, 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 a, there's a massive famine and, and they need to go to Egypt because there's some advisor to the emperor, sorry, to the pharaoh in Egypt who has said that there'd be a massive famine coming. And so Egypt has stored up all this grain for seven years and now they've got stocks for seven years. And so Abram and his family go, uh, having mourned the loss of, Je- of um, Joseph, to Egypt and find that pharaoh's advisor is Joseph. And Joseph is the one that God has been working through, through the brother's evil, to bring about the answer to this promise, that Abram's family would not die, but they would grow. And so they live prosperously there in Egypt, uh, friends with the, with the Pharaoh because of Joseph's position. They're there for a while. That Pharaoh dies. Joseph dies. Generations go on. And the next Pharaoh forgets who Joseph was and who these people are and starts treating them as slaves because he doesn't want them because they are so large and numerous to overtake um, the Egyptians. And so there we we hear in the book of Exodus, God's plan to bring his people out of slavery. They cry out to God. And we'll look at the book of Exodus after this series. We're spending the next um, first bit of first term, so 10 weeks, looking through this book of Exodus in detail. But here we see that they leave the slavery of Egypt with with the plagues. And they go out through the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, and they head. And there's over a million of them. And in the back of your head, promise to Abraham. You'll be great. There'll be many of you. And you're starting to think, hey, look, this is sounding like something is going on here. God is fulfilling his promises. 
God's made them into a great nation. They are great in terms of descendants. He was blessing them. He's bringing them out of slavery and into a promised land. But at the moment, they're not in their own land. They're not in that place that God promised them. The nations aren't really being blessed through them yet. So there's still things that haven't quite happened. And that's what the books of Exodus and Joshua and Judges and Ruth and 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, they're all about Israel getting into the land and and fulfilling this promise. And at the center of all those books about getting into the land is a man by the name of David. A man introduced you today and our kids talk so well of a man that God chose to be king. And that's where we're going today, to understand David. David is the, the, the father of all Jews. Jews see everyone in the line of David as so important. And here's what you're going to see today. If you don't understand David, you will not understand Jesus. If you don't understand David, you will not understand Jesus. And if you don't understand David and Jesus, you won't understand God and what he's doing. You won't understand life. The key to living and understanding your purpose here in life is understanding this man, David, and his son. I want to play you a quick video of a Jew who the penny dropped for about who David was and who Jesus is. Have a look at this. Here's what you need to do. You've got to first shave your head. You dress all in black. You've got to wear a white robe, eat only kosher foods. You've got to become a vegetarian. You face Jerusalem. You've got to face India when you pray. You pray only in Hebrew, and you grow a nice big beard. And if you do all of those outward cultural things, you'll discover the God of the universe. And I'm thinking this is crazy that someone thinks that they can force their culture on God and that God's going to be impressed by what you wear, what direction you face when you pray, what you eat, and all these sorts of things. It seemed to me that if there was a God out there who could be known, he should be able to be recognized no matter where I face, no matter how I'm dressed, because he's God. Growing up, we always understood that we had our Bible and the Gentiles had their Bible in the New Testament and that they were two completely separate books. Because the only people I knew who were believers in Jesus were all people in our public school who were Italian Catholic, I imagined that Jesus was Italian. And so the understanding that he's actually Jewish was was a shock. And then to hear that the New Testament was written by Jews, I, I couldn't believe it. My expectation was that the New Testament was like my grandparents had told me. It was a a book on how to persecute the Jews and something you should stay away from. Of course, when you're told you should stay away from something, (laughs) curiosity gets the best of you, and you've got to see it. When I opened the New Testament, I was expecting to find a handbook on how to persecute the Jews. My grandparents had warned me that it was written by people who killed the Jews. That's what I was expecting to see, and yet when I'm opening it, I'm reading a story written by Jews about Jewish people. The New Testament was a fascinating book. And so as I opened this book in the library, I kind of looked around, made sure that none of my friends had seen me taking a Christian Bible off the shelf. And I open it, here's the first sentence. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So three people are mentioned, and they're all Jewish. I was very shocked. And as I continued to read, 
I'm reading the story of a Jewish man who was born in a Jewish village in a Jewish country and one day walks into a synagogue and announces that he is the Messiah. The more I read the words of Jesus, the more I became attracted to him. It was as beautiful as anything I had ever read in any other part of the Bible. As I came to faith that Yeshua, that Jesus was the Messiah, it was clear that that was the most Jewish thing I could do. This is not the person who's a renegade to our people. This is the one who was promised in our Bible. And what we get to see this morning is the passage in the Old Testament that provides the hinge to see how the whole Bible fits together, Old and New Testament. Uh, We get to see the place of Jesus as that Messiah, that that Jewish man understood. And we get to see how God works. So come with me. Uh, Open up your Bibles if you've got them there or have a look on the screen. Uh, We're going to see what this passage here in 2 Samuel 7 is talking about and how it fits into the overarching picture of this story of the king, the snake and the promise. Have a look, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, as we understand the context of God's promise to David. When the king had settled into his palace, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, Look, I'm living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. Here we see David, uh, the king God chose, as opposed to Saul before him, who was the king that the people chose, uh, has, has won all sorts of victories. He, he's been military conquest. He's just winning the whole time. God, through David, has brought victory upon victory upon victory over the enemies. They're now in this promised land. They're in the place in Canaan that, that God had given them, and, and God is the one who has done it all. And, and you sit back and you're like, wow, remember those promises to Abraham? They're ringing. He's in a place. God's king is in his position. Is this it? Is, is David kind of the, what those promises to Abraham were talking about? David sits back and he's just finished building his palace, which was huge, massive. A house for a king. It was, it, was, it was ginormous. And realizes that God is dwelling in the, in the tabernacle, which just means tent. And he's been in this tent, kind of going without, uh, through, with Israel throughout the kind of Egypt and throughout their conquests for almost 500 years. Imagine a 500-year-old tent. I can't even get a tent to last more than 10 years. I always get moldy and gross and like, you know, there's this kind of festy stuff growing on the inside where you forgot to sweep it out. And there's always a lolly somewhere stuck to something, right? And and 500 years of moving around a desert of war, of battle. And so David kind of scratches his head after he's finished his own and goes, oh, let's, what about God's house? That's not very nice now that we've settled in our land, just giving him this, this tent. And it all seems fine, until you know the background of what happens in ancient times. It sounds like David's kind of trying to do something good, trying to think through what's happening. But what we see is uh, throughout the kind of records we have through the Egyptian kind of pharaohs, that when kings had military success, they would build their god a temple or a monument. They would go and say, look, I want to build a monument to, to, my, to my god, to my deity, so that, that deity might bless us. Um, that the temple priest would come, there's this kind of pattern of this happening throughout history, the temple priest would come with an oracle from God. And I would say, look, this God says, so I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll, I'll tell you about Thutmosis III, Pharaoh of Egypt. Um, you can actually go and see him in, in the Cairo Museum. Uh, they have his mummified body there and you can see his face, there's photos of it. Uh, so real guy and you can see on, on the walls of 
um, the pyramids inside these tombs that had written these stories. Uh, so Thutmosis, of the pharaoh of Egypt, he, he decides to build a temple for his god, Amun-Ra. Uh, then the priests of the god Amun-Ra come and they say, uh, Thutmose, since you've, you've built my dwelling place, you've outstripped all other kings by building my monuments. Now I want to establish your throne until distant days. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Some sort of ringing of something happening here. Building the temple for their local deity secured the blessings of their deity, of their God. And it makes me wonder, is this what David is doing here? Now, we'll see next week as we look at where everything went downhill, that David isn't perfect. He hasn't got it all sorted out and neither does his son. But this king that God shows, is he here thinking that he's trying to secure the blessing of God? But nowhere, at no point throughout all of history has God ever asked for a house. Has he ever said, I needed a temple? Nowhere has he said that. Unlike the God of all the nations around them, this God was with his people. He's a God that camps out with them. He doesn't sit in his high place away. And you get a a hint of what this God is like. I don't know where you're at coming along to church this Sunday and, and what you're thinking about Jesus, but the God that we meet on the pages of the Bible is a God that is intimately involved with his people. He doesn't need some high and lofty house. He is there amongst them, in the thick of it, in the dust and the dirt. It's very different from every other deity that we see throughout history. Every other religion, you see, works on the principle that you build God a house and God will bless you, right? You do something good for God, God gives you something good back. That's how it works. But the true and living God that the Bible talks about is a God of sheer grace, now, what is grace? Is that the thing you just say before dinner? What, what is it? It's this. He says, I will build you a house. You don't build me a house. I will build you a house. It's very, very different. I will bless you. You don't bless me. You can't win my favor. <laughs> Do you know who you are and your twisted nature because you are a child of Adam? Do you know how you've treated me, consistently rebelling against my way and pretending to be the ruler of your life and making up your own law? You can't please me. You can't build me a house, but I will build you a house. And have a look at this. Uh, listen to God's word in uh, 2 Samuel 7 verse 4. And here, this is the, the word from God. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go to my servant David and say this. This is what the Lord says. Are you to build a house for me to live in? From the time I brought you out of, uh, brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I've not lived in a house. Instead, I've been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever asked anyone amongst the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? What are you doing? See, this God is utterly different. The blessing of this God comes unconditionally. Unlike the blessing of every other religion and deity that we see on the face of the planet, this God just chooses to bless. Why? Because he can. What do I deserve in that blessing? Nothing. How have I achieved it? Because I'm somehow attractive or helpful to him? No, no, nothing to do with that. Because he loves me. He loves you. He loves the world. This is the God of the Bible. And what you're seeing here is that We're to respond to him on his terms. We don't say, look, I like to worship you my way. I'm going to build you a house. No, no, no. God says, you respond to me on my terms. Who do you think you are? That kind of helpfully shows us that 
we often love to come up with ways to please God. We live our lives going, oh, I like to please God, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm real good at these things, or I, I do good things, or I give to charities. Or I, we have certain ways that we think, I like to please God by singing songs where I get carried away to Him, and that somehow must please Him. How do we know if that pleases God? I think I've told this story before, but um, uh, one of my good friends growing up uh, got married, and early on in their, their life, they watched this movie called Sliding Doors. And in the movie Sliding Doors, uh, the husband buys the wife flowers every time he sleeps with someone else. And she finds out at the end of the movie that every time um, a husband brings her flowers, everyone's going, oh, isn't that nice? Uh, really, he's just making up for his guilt because he'd been sleeping with someone else. And so as this couple, uh, our friends from church, um, watched this movie, the wife turned to her husband and said, I never want you to buy me flowers. Now, how great is that as a guy? You're like, "Woo! get out of jail free card. Now, why was that? Just because it was the thought that oh, maybe something's going on. Now, for her, it just had such a strong reaction in that movie that she said that. Now, if he went, but I want to love you on my terms and brought her flowers one day, you can imagine how she'd respond, right? How dare you do that? And slap him in the face. What are you doing? I said, I don't like flowers. He said, no, but I want to love you. And so I bought you flowers. And it's just not attractive or helpful or pleasing to her. Well, so it is here when God says to David, what are you doing? You don't build me a house. We worship God on his terms. Simon the Stylite was another guy who tried to worship God on his own terms. Uh, he decided that he would worship God, uh, if you look, check out the history books, by, by living on a platform three meters in the air for 37 years. Uncomfortable, yes. Helpful, no. We don't get to choose how we worship this God. He lays out who he is and what he's done and how we are to please him. Now, the idea of building him a temple, it wasn't wrong in and of itself. The motives for doing it, probably not wrong, or maybe he was trying to secure something there. But have a listen to what God does next. Verse 8 of chapter 7. Now, this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of hosts of armies, that's what Lord of hosts means, Lord of armies says, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a name for you like that of the greatest in the land. I will establish a place for my people in Israel and plant them so that they might live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not afflict them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people, Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. At best, David's acting out of kind of wrong ideas. At worst, he's trying to secure some sort of future. And God comes back with this amazing promise. Again, who is this God that the Bible talks about? If he is true, he is unlike every other God. He is no tyrant. He's a God who blesses and who chooses to bless. And you notice it's all God's work that has happened here to, to David. David's not in this position because of anything good that he has done. He's just a shepherd boy, a guy from not even leading the sheep. He's following them. <laughs> the sheep are leading him around. And then God takes him and God says, rule my people, the nation that I will make the nation for all nations. I've been with you. Your victories are my victories. Your wins are because of me. See, you can't earn your way into this God's favor. No matter 
how many charities you support, no matter how many good deeds that you do. Why? Because everything good that happens in us is a work of God anyway. And because you can't earn God's blessing. He's already offered it to us. He's already given it to us freely. Do you see how this God is different from every other? He is full of undeserved gifts, grace. He's full of undeserved blessing from beginning to end. That is what this God has on offer. But then, did you notice the content of the promise? The content of what was actually said? Did it ring any bells as you went through? It's exactly in line with the promise to Abram. Remember those four things that were promised? God will give him many descendants, make him into a great nation. They will possess a promised land and have rest from their enemies. God will be their God, and through them all nations on earth will be blessed. God takes that and says, you know what? I'm making this happen for you, David, through you. Have a look at verse 12. And this verse here from 12 to 16 is something worth highlighting in your Bible, remembering because we're about to see the hinge that shows how the Old Testament and the New Testament come together, how it was always one plan. Uh, There aren't many passages, all all of the Bible is God's word, but there aren't many passages where the whole plan of what God is doing is kind of shrunk down into a couple of verses, but here is one. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, And I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be a father to him and he'll be a son to me. When he does wrong, I'll discipline him with a human rod, with blows from others. But my faithful love will never leave him as I removed it from Saul. I remove him from your way. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever i can't even imagine what it would be like to be told rowan you are the king of england like that's crazy i'm not i'm from the wrong family line well my grandmother was born in england but, but at this moment the creator of the universe says that through you i will raise up one of your sons to be the king that will rule forever We're not talking about some sort of rain and then die. We're talking about forever. That will not die. There's this amazing promise here. God's kingdom, his nation, his people, his king is coming here through this person of David. Now, there's a a play on words happening the whole way through this. Uh, The word house in Hebrew, just like in English, has kind of a number of different meanings. You can say a house is in the thing that I live in, you know, with the four walls and the roof, and uh, that's what a house is. It's a building, so I'm building God a house, a room to live in. Or it can also mean dynasty, uh, that whole idea of, a, of lineage. So the queen is of the house of Windsor, right? That, that's her family line. She's of that house, of that dynasty. Uh, she doesn't live in the house of Windsor. She lives in Sandringham, right? Just down the road from me. Just, it's awesome. I live in Sandringham, but not that one. Anyway. So she lives in a house, but she's from the dynasty or the house of Windsor. And what God is doing here, he's using this play on words, David, you want to build God a temporary dwelling on earth, but I'm going to build you a dynasty. I'm going to, I'm going to bring in my kingdom and through a family line that you can have right here, that is what will happen. And the leader of that dynasty will come from your loins, your son, your family. 
One is coming, a son of David, who will rule forever in this everlasting kingdom. That's the promise. And as I thought through this, I think we struggle to understand an everlasting kingdom. Everything we have ends. Good times, they end. Um, Stuff you have that's great that you enjoy, Christmas presents, they might have broken already. And we replace them. Um, the times in life when you're feeling fit and healthy, I think they end. I'm kind of feeling older as I'm growing older, and I'm just thinking, oh, I'm not the same as what I was when I was 20. Um, things end. We're not used to things going on forever because we don't see anything going on forever. But that's the amazing news of this passage. There is something like nothing else on view for you. Everyone will experience eternity. Everyone. But if you want to experience it with its joy and blessing and being able to call God your father, then you need to come to this king. For apart from him, there is judgment on all. Because we have rejected him, because we are twisted, because we have played God. This promise, this everlasting kingdom through this king who would rule forever is what every other prophet in the Old Testament is speaking about. They're referencing back to this point, the one who would bring them into this new kingdom and it would last forever. Listen, listen to the way the psalmist describes it in that psalm that Anna opened for today. Um, look at Psalm 96. He says this, Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice and let the sea and all that fills it resound. You're like, whoa, it's a big picture. Let the fields and everything in them exult. Then all the trees of the forest will shout for joy. What is causing this, this praise, this point where the whole earth, even the trees and the seas and the lands and the heavens are singing about something? What is it that makes the psalmist write this way? Before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to rule the earth. The psalmist here, much later, is talking, or around this time, is talking about this promised son of David. That's the picture. A king is coming to rule forever. And it so changes the way that we view the world that here... Now, I think it's probably talking in Psalm 96, metaphorically. I'm not sure if the the trees will actually sing, but they might. The picture is, this is great. This is amazing. We should be ecstatic about the reality of the coming of this king. For God is reversing the problem of our fall, of our rebellion against him. He is bringing us back into relationship with his king and offering us life forever. Better than we had in the garden when we had access to the tree of life and were kicked out. He's now offering us life that will not end, that has no influence of a snake or sinfulness. I don't know if you're like me, but I have so many issues trying to live up to my own expectations of myself, let alone God's. What is on promise here is a world that acts and lives perfectly. Right relationship with one another, right relationship with this God. This is an amazing picture. But it's a little confusing, this passage. Because there are things that kind of happen just in one generation, and then there are things that don't happen for many generations, and there are things that haven't quite happened yet in this promise. Because what happens with lots of biblical prophecy pointing forward to what happens in the future is that it acts like a telescope. You know those telescopes that you have if you're a sailor? I'm sure everyone's been sailors. And you know, you have them in the pocket and they, they extend. They go longer and shorter, right? And so I should have bought one of our kids' ones, but I didn't. Uh, and you can have them, you can go out, out nice and long and it helps you to be able to have the whole telescope thing so you can see a long way away. Um, and what happens is 
on the, on the, on the bits of the, the lens on the inside, the pieces of glass, there's different magnifications happening and different bits are kind of coming through. And that's what's happening here with, with this passage. It's like an extended telescope. It's taking the future and bringing all those things in to be able to see them now. Some things will happen right in this generation, like the bit of lens next to my eye. And other things are going to happen a little bit further on, but we can see them all through the same telescope, all through the same piece of writing. Does that make sense? So here, it's acting like a kind of telescope. Because David wants to build God a house. God says, no, I'll build you a dynasty. And a child of yours will build my house, my dynasty. But what happens is Solomon, his son, comes along. And this is almost the high point. Um, Solomon is kind of this king with so much wisdom and so much wealth. He's just dripping. We've looked through the book of Ecclesiastes together just um, last term. And if you weren't here, jump online and have a listen to Solomon's wisdom. But he's a man who's got more money, more wisdom, more contacts, more pleasure than anyone else in the whole world. If there was a high point of God's people throughout history, it's Solomon. And you're like, is this it? He's the son of David. Is he the one, the king that would rule forever? Will this go on? And what does Solomon do? He builds the temple of God. He does build God a house, four walls to live in. And so there's a sense in which this prophecy does get fulfilled just at the next little lens down the telescope. But what we'll find out is that that temple does get bowled over. And that dynasty does not yet continue, for we are waiting for another king, and we'll look at that next week. But Solomon does not fulfill all of this. Uh, It is true, though, that nations come to him. All nations are blessed, or many nations are blessed through him. But he dies. He is not the king that will rule forever. What's on view here is a a king down the end of the telescope, on that lens that's being brought nice and close, looking forward to history of a king that would come. Listen to Isaiah talking about this same promise, pointing forward. Have a look, Isaiah chapter 9. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with righteousness and justice from now on and forever. The promise to David is just ringing loud. Read your Bible through these lenses that the Bible has to say, do you see what this is about? It's about the child of David, the son of David. Now, the Jewish man in that video said as he opened up the New Testament to understand what it's about, he opened to the first page and Matthew chapter 1 says this. Have a look at it. It's on the screen. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Is it important that Jesus was of the line of David? You bet it is. For he is this son. He is the one whom death does not defeat, who rules the kingdom forever. Have a listen uh, to Luke chapter 1, verse 33. The start of these gospels around the life of Jesus. Listen to what they say. Now listen to Mary, he's saying. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. What Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the patriarchs, all the prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, what they all long to see, we have seen. And his name is Jesus. The king has come. That's the claim. Jesus is the Messiah, the promised king from the line of David. 
who will rule on his throne forever, through whom all people on the face of the earth will be blessed. He will offer a promised land, a place forever, a new heaven and a new earth. This is not like some political leader's opening speech that comes and goes. What is on offer here through these promises to David that are fulfilled in Jesus is eternity. How sure are you about where you will spend eternity? Have you seen that this Jesus didn't come in a vacuum, but came in line with promises throughout all history and that your life and my life is dependent on our response to this king for he will be the king. He will rule forever. The question is, do you want to be with him or against him? What have we done to deserve what Jesus did for us? That he laid his life down? That he faced the penalty that we deserve so that we could be called right with God? Nothing. Just like Abram had done nothing, like David had done nothing. God chose to love the world that he created because that is what he is like. I'm amazed at the God of the Bible, by the God of history, that he would choose to love me so much that his one and only son, who is the heir of all things, and through whom and for whom and by whom all things were created, he would choose to love me through Jesus' death on the cross in my place. What does all this mean? How do we understand this whole picture? Well, number one, it means we can trust God to fulfill his promises. This God, the God of the Bible, does come through. When you're sitting there going, why is this happening? What is going on? Will Jesus come back? What is going on here? Was Jesus' death really sufficient for me? The resounding answer of history is yes. Yes. You know, up until the 1800s, there'd been hardly any archaeological evidence for the name David. And for such a large name, you'd think that there would be. But then in 1818, I think it was, they found this inscription called the Tel Dan inscription. And on it is written the word House of David. Talking about Israel and these people. And you're like, look at this again. And we keep seeing even uh, archaeology backs up. God fulfills his promises. He has said this long ago and he's saying it to us now. What else does it mean? If this is true, You can go nowhere else but Jesus. There is no other king who will rule forever. There is no other way to get back into right relationship with God. No matter what we think, no matter how we want to live, it must come through the son of David, who is Jesus. For there is only one king of this universe, and there is only one who has achieved forgiveness for us. There is only one who brings us the blessing of this promise. Jesus is the greatest sign that God is for us. For he came to be with us and he died instead of us. What else does it mean? This promise of David is for us. That means we get to long for the day Jesus returns. Long for the day that things get put right, that in that one promise in, in 2 Samuel 7, that was like a telescope. We long for that final plane when it gets up to here. Things that we can see through it when all things are put right. There is no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things is put away. We long for that day. But here's the news. It is coming. God's put his blood on it. So we can live lives full of joy. For if we trust Jesus, if our lives are treating him as king, accepting the promises he's given us, then we can long for that day 
question is, do you? Do you long for the day Jesus comes back? Is he what captivates you in life? Do you recognize how profound his promises are? Friends, we have a God who is like no other. How great he is. How joyful we can be in response to him. For he is God. His words are true. His blessings have been given and we can enjoy them forever if we would but come and trust his son. As we look at these promises of David and we see the whole plan of the Bible, we can stand back and be amazed that God would choose to do this for us. That he would choose to do it with people who don't want anything to do with him. Where will you spend eternity? Well, if you trust in Jesus, you will spend it with him in his kingdom in right relationship with God.